0: This week on the Garden DC podcast, we're talking to Barry Glick. Barry is a columnist for our Washington Gardener magazine on native plants and his column is Going Native, but he is well known in the gardening world worldwide for many things and welcome Barry. And one of them is for being a hellebore expert, which is what we're going to talk about today But before we dive into that, we're going to talk about you, Barry, for a little bit and your plant journey and how you became transplanted from Philadelphia to Greenbrier County, West Virginia. Welcome, Barry.
1: Hi, Kath. Well, uh, first of all, let's get something straight here. I don't like the word expert. Sets up Ah. too much expectation from people and I can't handle that. So I'm not an expert. I'm a a geek about plants. And, uh, so let's substitute the word geek for expert. Let's leave, let's leave the experts, uh, that terminology for guys with a PhD.
0: Done. So we'll call you the, the hellebore geek or yeah. plant
1: nerd. <laughs> That's Perfect. Perfect. I fit into that category very well.
0: So, you're saying you don't have a, a doctorate in horticulture. Um, what is your degree in? Uh,
1: geez, I was a child of the 60s growing up in the streets of Philadelphia. I didn't go to college except for a night school for photography. And I do get lots of compliments on the photographs of my website. So I guess that paid off.
0: Yeah, definitely an asset for such a visual um, occupation as Plants, and um, you would say maybe that you had a degree in uh, experiences of life. And, on the job training, yes, definitely on the job training, and of course the equivalent in experience. And so you were a city kid to start off with. Yes. Were you always into plants? Were you a house always. plant collector?
1: Well, the here's the uh, the backstory. My father used to go out drinking with his buddies on Sunday. And one day when I was five years old, well, I mean, they could sell him anything. He used to bring home tape recorders, transistor radios, little televisions. And one day he brought home a six pack of tomatoes, a six pack of carnations and a pack of radish seeds. And I could just say the rest is history, but uh, that's the radishes are really what excited me the most because We got lots of great radishes and then some of them bolted and formed these really strange looking seed pods. And I said to my mother, what's that? And she said, well, I think there are seed pods. And I saved the seeds and planted them next year. Of course, being F1 hybrids, they didn't come quite true, but they were delicious, edible radishes. And I said to my mother, I don't think I'm ever going to buy food again. So uh, it worked out pretty good. And I am definitely what you would call a seed freak. I love collecting seeds from plants. I like hybridizing and making seeds. And we put out in the hellebore patch alone, and when I say patch, I'm talking about six acres, and we're only collecting seeds in a quarter acre because we collect about 150,000 seeds a year. And we put these four by six, five by eight, and six by 10 polyester seed bags they have to breathe uh, a lot of people start out putting little Ziploc bags and other things over the seed heads so they don't miss the seeds because you can go from having a green ripe hellebore seed pod and i'm just using hellebores as an example when you go to sleep that night and wake up the next morning and it's brown and the seeds have already fallen out and then good luck trying to pick them out with a pair of 10 inch forceps out of the uh, mulch under the plant or leaflet or whatever you have there. So we put on these seed bags, and it turns out the seed bags are mill spun polyester, which lasts for years and years and years because they're uh, ultraviolet stabilized. But unfortunately, the drawstrings on the seed bags are made of cotton, so they rot. So we use a, a clothespin, a spring loaded clothespin, to hold them closed so the seeds don't fall out. And it looks like snow in July, because in February, March, and April and May we're pollinating, and in June we put the seed bags on. July, we collect the seed bags and clean the seeds from the well. It's the proverbial wheat from the shaft in a what's called a clipper fanning mill, and it separates out all the leaf particles and dust and you're bound to get all kinds of insects crawling into the bags and after going through two different size screens that vibrate at the bottom comes out of the chute pure beautiful hellebore seeds which are about the size and shape of rice except they're black and that's the treasure. Then we sow them 5,000 to a 17 by 17 five inch deep Anderson propagation flat We put a piece of hardware cloth over the top of it to keep the varmints out. And right now, they're germinating beautifully. In fact, on my Facebook page today, I just put a picture of one of the seed trays germinating. And a caption was, the eggs are finally hatching. So it looks pretty cool. I love all those (laughs) little cotyledons.
0: So you said 5,000. in a 17 by 17 tray, how many of those seeds germinate?
1: Well, uh, probably well more than half germinate the first year. The rest of them germinate the second year. So we're really careful about saving. In fact, I never, I never throw away seed trays because things could germinate several years down the line. I, I remember how I found that out, and it was with a native plant called Pacapoda. Uh, And Actiopachypota is doll's eyes or wolfbane. And what I did, I remember finding a half a dozen plants in the woods up the holler from here and collected the seeds. And it it couldn't have worked out more beautifully. I was sowing them in a 288-cell seed tray. And I had 288 seeds from these six plants. I, I just, you know, I couldn't believe it. So I sowed them and put them out in the woods. So Mother Nature took its course because I was taught many, many years ago by one of the most brilliant people in the Rock Garden Society who's long gone. His name was Norman C. Dino, uh, middle initial C. Dino, D-E-N-O, who wrote a book on propagation from seed theory and practice and covered 200 and 50, no, 2,000 species. The book has been reprinted. I think it's on uh, on Amazon. You can find it. Norman C. Dino. And I used to get dot matrix computer printouts from Norm while he was editing the book before he even published it. And I remember calling him and telling him, I said, I had these aquilegia seeds and I had them under lights at 70 degrees, the optimum temperature, I thought, and they didn't germinate and I know I collected them fresh. And he said, no, 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 you have to replicate nature. And that's the simplest thing. It's not rocket science. The seeds needed freezing and thawing. They needed to be where they would be out in the wild, freezing and thawing in nature. And what that does, that makes little minute cracks in the seed coat and eventually water's absorbed and the plants, the know that the temperature has warmed up and is steady and stable, and that it's time to germinate. Now, there are certain seeds that need a little, little bit of help beyond that, mostly seeds of the Leguminaceae family, which have a really, really hard seed coat and could be years before they germinate. Now, you can help that along by, and I realize we got far away from the Actea Pacapoda seed. So, I'll get back to that in a second. And where was I? Okay, so leguminaceae seeds, you can take the seed and where it was attached to the plant, on that end of the seed, rub it on an emery board and uh, kind of pierce the coat so water gets in right away. Or you could take them and shake them in a vial of coarse sand. Now, getting back to the Actiopacopoda, and I can't believe that as obsessive-compulsive ADHD that I am that I remembered where I left off. Give me a second to get my bearings in the story. So (laughs) I put the seed flat, the 288-cell seed flat, out in the woods, and the following spring expecting 288 seedlings, because I know I collected the seeds fresh, I got nothing, not a zip, zed nothing. So I left it out there because I had so many other things happening. My philosophy is since a watched pot never boils, you have a lot of pots and there's always something boiling because you can't be watching them all. So I put it out in the woods and then lo and behold, the following year, the second year, I had 280 little seedlings. So what those particular seeds had to go through was Two cycles of warmth and cold. So basically what I've done, if I want to germinate seeds like that, I'll put them in moist moss or vermiculite, put them in the refrigerator for six weeks, bring them out into a room temperature for six weeks, put them back in the refrigerator for six weeks and bring them out. And in six weeks, they usually germinate. And this is a a, a kind of steadfast rule across the board for things that require two cycles of warmth and cold. So you're actually kind of tricking mother nature there. I'm sure she knows what's going on, but she turns the other cheek to let us shave some time off since our lives are kind of finite and limited. And she wants us to enjoy all the amazing plants that she's created.
0: I love that description. And so that cold freeze thaw process that you described that some seeds require, not all seeds, um, that technical term is cold stratification, correct?
1: Well, then the word stratification is a misnomer as well, because Hmm. stratification just means layering in. So it's conditioning. I like the word conditioning better.
0: Yes, that makes more sense, but often on seed packs or directions, you might see the term stratification, so you would know that that means it has to go through uh, some type of winter exposure, whether you're creating it artificially or actually doing it for, right. for a whole Right.
1: Exactly. I'm a stickler for nomenclature and terminology, mm-hmm. so uh, well, I just call it conditioning.
0: Mm -hmm. And clarity always helps. And speaking of terminology, I notice you don't have a West Virginia accent, even though you've been there since the early 70s. Um, But you referred to the holler down the road. Um, Can you define that for us city folks?
1: Well, uh, most city folks would call it a hollow, H-O-L-L-O-W. There's a whole, if you Google hillbilly terminology, You'll find a, a description. Let's see. I'll do that while we're trying to hear hillbilly terminology. Hillbilly terminology. Uh, hillbilly terminology. Let's see. Hillbillies. a looks like it's a derogatory term, but we don't. <laughs> we don't mind it. We
0: yeah. Uh, it can be used. I think in in several ways. But was your transition from um, Philadelphia to West Virginia? Did you have to learn a new vocabulary, and and what drew you to that piece of land? What, well, what about it?
1: Yeah, yeah, geez, I I attribute my success to naivety and being green or wet behind the ears. There are many different ways to describe it, moving down here from growing up in a row house where there were 40 houses on each side of the street in the early 70s to land that I had no idea what I was doing and I can catalog all my mistakes, but I learned from them and I made lots of mistakes, but I rarely made the same ones twice. Now, I just happen to be sitting in a friend's living room waiting for them to get together Whatever they needed to head down to Atlantic City for the afternoon, and was flipping through the Philadelphia Inquirer, and I actually have the ad there. It is up on my wall, laminated, and in the farms for sale section. Because I always wanted a farm or farm land, and in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, they were three thousand dollars an acre, and this said, remote mountain farm, sixty acres. Well, actually, it said 50, 58 acres, 40 pole, 10 rod, more or less. There are different measure, ways of measuring land or smaller pieces. And so basically, it was 60 acres for $6,000. I said, wow, that must be a misprint. But I called the guy anyway, and he and I'm still in touch with him. He was kind of a land speculator, lived in Westchester, Pennsylvania. So I drove out to visit him, and he showed me some slides and drew a map on a paper bag, threw the dogs into a van thinking, well, West Virginia is only four hours away. And after about eight hours of driving, and you don't know what it's like driving a 1961 Volkswagen bus on Interstate 81. Oh my God. Um, you know, I ended up here. It turned out that the panhandle of West Virginia, the Eastern part, which we consider a suburb of DC, uh, is four hours from Philadelphia, the real part of West Virginia, where I live, Greenbrier County, the mountains, is seven and a half hours. But back then it was eight hours because Interstate 64 wasn't finished. And there was a a mountain pass between Covington and White Sulphur Springs that if you got behind a tractor trailer, you just moped along at five miles an hour, breathing in diesel fumes. So it was tough. It was tough. And then You know, uh, geez, building a house from scratch where you're sleeping and the snow is blowing in in between the cracks of the plywood and you ran out of firewood. So you're out there with a chainsaw, which you just learned how to use at midnight, cutting up your split rail fence to keep the fire going. Uh, It's just the tip of the iceberg, but it's it's been a wild ride and um, it's pretty interesting.
0: Hmm. and the first crop you started growing was Can,
1: is it le it's still not legal in west virginia but i think it is up where you are
0: mm-hmm. in parts yeah, yeah.
1: um yes yeah, so it was a lucrative medicinal crop had palmate leaves mm-hmm. and uh nobody down here knew what it was so uh with that money from that, I uh, really expanded and ended up in the lumber business, and that led to the hot tub business. And I ended up trading hot tubs and whirlpool baths to different nurserymen for nursery stock, and that's how I started the nursery. And, and then realized what that there was a demand for um, native plants, and realized, I said, oh my God, they're so easy to propagate and they grow all around me. I live in one of the most botanically rich areas in the world. I mean, it, the floor of West Virginia is a 1,089 pages. It's three inches thick and covers over 2,500 species. It was last updated in 1976 by Earl Core and P.D. Strasbaugh who were real wildflower guys and they were friends <clears throat> Friends of Edgar T. Werry, who lived up your way, who had a journal, a little newsletter pamphlet in the fifties about wildflowers. In fact, there's a plant named for him, Tiorella werii. and you know, these guys were the these guys were the epitome of plant nerds. I mean, they knew native plants where they grew and it was it was amazing and all their literature actually edgar t worry wrote a book on the genus phlox and other uh plants in the polymoniaceae family but primarily phlox which was written in the 50s which is still except for some of the antiquated nomenclature still considered uh, the only reference source for the genus phlox hmm.
0: and back then they were called wildflowers. I don't think that the term native plants was being used commonly.
1: Not. I don't think so. I think that they were considered wildflowers. That was the term. They're still considered wildflowers because they're not hybridized. Although it's interesting. The, the guy what was the thing, uh, Tradescan who sent our native plants back to King George and they ended up in England and Germany and they took plants like our Phlox paniculata and our plants like Tradescantia virginiana, which was named after Tratiscan, and they started hybridizing them over there. And there's probably about 50 Phlox paniculata that were bred in Germany from the plants that James Tratiscan sent back to King George.
0: Wow, and so That's one big part of your business, correct, is propagating from wild collected seed or seeds that you're propagating up. Yes, I
1: I really like to preserve genetic diversity by propagating by seed. If you do plants from cuttings, there's really no genetic diversity there. And if there should be a disease on a particular plant that affects maybe 10% of the population, then that one plant that... All the plants that are made from that plant, propagated vegetatively, either by cuttings or division or tissue culture, they're all going to be susceptible to that that disease. Whereas if you're growing from seeds from that population, only 10% of the plants are going to be susceptible to that disease. So we like to think that by propagating from seed, we are preserving genetic diversity.
0: Mm -hmm. And for most of what you're growing and selling, um, you're doing it by mail order these days, correct?
1: Yeah, I still get lots of visitors here and I love visitors. I've had people here from virtually every country in the world, every at least first world country in the world. And I like the byline that you gave me in the magazine uh, that my garden is a Mecca. I like that term.
0: And I wanted to also ask you about your online business. So it's Sunshine Farm and Gardens, and that's the name of your property. Um, what brought about that name?
1: Oh, well, let's see. The first night I was here, a friend of mine gave me some orange sunshine LSD, and I saw the meaning of life in a rock. And uh, again, <laughs> I'll have to say the rest of history. So okay. it, it became Sunshine Farm and Gardens.
0: And of course, because we're having our main talk today about hellebores, we probably do need to define that they are not native uh, to the United States.
1: Well, that's, that's what I, I was going to mm-hmm. say. They mm-hmm. are. Every, every plant is native somewhere. Mm-hmm. And the hellebores are native to mainland Europe, but primarily all the species hellebores, most of them are native to the Balkans. Uh, Serbia, Croatia, Bosnia, you the former Yugoslavia, That things like um, Hellebore, Purparescens, Viridis. Uh, I think Viridis occurs in England. Um, Hellebore fetidus is uh, in the British Isles, besides being native all over Europe. So this is a good time to mention that in the old days, in the early times of Hellebore's they were referred to as Hellebore orientalis, which is kind of a misnomer because that what they basically are is a compendium or let's say a hybrid of hybrids. For example, Hellebore purporescence brings a purplish color, Hellebore virtus brings a green color, helibore multifetus brings a divided foliage, helibore multifetus subspecies triacus brings a really divided foliage. Uh, there is actually a species, Helleborus orientalis, which has two subspecies. The regular Helleborus orientalis, which is also uh, from the Caucasus actually, has two subspecies. One is subspecie gutatus, which brings that beautiful red spotting to the white background of color and Heliborus orientalis subspecie abchasicus, which brings a reddish early flowering uh, plant to the uh, palate. So when you see all these different colored Hellebores, they're now known as helleborus ex-hybridus. And it could be any one of them, infinite, color, shape, and form. I mean, even the foliage is variable. So you could look at it, and if it if it's leaning into the really purple colors, say, you know, it's got a big influence from Hellebore purporescence, or if it's more greenish, then it's Hellebore viridus has more of an influence on it. Uh, one of the most desirable colors in Hellebores, and one of the most elusive, is Hellebore's O'doris, which brings a yellow color to the uh, the mix. But Helleborus odorus is kind of a weak grower, so the plants aren't as vigorous as some of the rest of the colors.
0: Hmm. And I would think that most gardeners who might not be using their Latin would be referring to hellebores by their Two bloom times, either the Christmas Rose or the Lenten Rose.
1: Exactly. And what we're talking about so far has been the Lenten Rose. If you want to talk about the Christmas Rose, we're talking about one particular genus or species rather in the genus Heliborus, and that's Heliborus Niger. And they have white flowers that flower around Christmas. Now you may wonder why it has the specific epithet Niger, which means black in, Latin, when the flowers are white. Well,
0: yeah, that always confused me.
1: The roots yeah. are black. The roots are uh, black, and ah. uh, they were used medicinal. Even though most of the plants in the Ranunculaceae family, which is the buttercup family, most of the plants in that genus are poisonous to some degree. And people worry, oh, I don't want to grow hellebores because my dogs will die. I said, well, you know, I had five dogs at that when I started growing them. And no dog would eat a hellebore because they're bitter and acrid. I mean, that's why the deer don't eat them. They have a principle in them that protects them. And yes, if you sat down and pretended they were spinach and made a wonderful salad with Kalamata olives, put a little olive oil and balsamic vinegar on it, you still wouldn't be able to eat it because they taste terrible. I've taken a bite out of them. And I've always <laughs> had the... He always had the desire and never got around to it. It's project number 802 on my list of things to do is uh, take the leaves of hellebores. Maybe one of your listeners or readers will uh, be me to it and become famous and wealthy and uh, take the, the leaves of hellebores and put them in a blender with water and or alcohol or something. See if I could extract the principle that makes them deer proof in the leaves. And spray it on other plants like Trilliums, Herpaticus, which the deer love, or if you really want to do a test, spray it on Daylilies and Hostas and see if we can make a mixture that is like strong as Liquid Fence or one of the other uh, deer away or hinder or one of these other deer sprays. And mm-hmm. that way you could cut your halibar leaves off in the fall and make this brew to use in the spring Uh, anybody does that let me know
0: yeah that'll be an interesting experiment and you'll have plenty of foliage in your garden to to try it out with well with
1: the the hellebores i could bail this stuff up
0: (laughs) yes so do you remove um the spent foliage at the beginning of winter at the end of winter how do you take care of yours
1: funny you should ask and that's the uh One of the beginning slides in my hellebore lecture is what a bed of hellebores looks like in early spring, not cleaned up. And the next bed, the next photo of the same bed is a couple of days later cleaned up with all the old foliage taken off. And there's no way in the world, even with an army of fellow plant nerds with uh, felco number seven or number two pruners or even hedge trimmers could we cut off all the old foliage and people say well doesn't it cause disease to have the old foliage on there i said no of course not not unless there's disease to start with or something uh, no in fact i believe that leaving the old foliage on protects the crown of the plant because it's like a it has the like a vase like uh, foliage and leaves collect in it so you have like automatic mulching to protect the crown of the plant maybe delay flowering until all the hard freezes are over with then they decompose and add organic matter to the soil
0: Hmm, great points and yeah i would say if it was really tattered or if there was a you know ice storm and it looked really awful that it's not going to be horrible for the plant to cut off well, some of in, in,
1: foliage. You know, I'm talking about having six acres of them to mm-hmm. deal with in the early days when it was just a quarter acre they were beautifully mulched well fed and and pruned and deadheaded uh but in in the home garden there's nothing wrong with I mean I would wait till right before they were ready to flower to cut the foliage off. Cause at that point, hopefully all the hard freezes are over with, but uh, certainly the couple beds right around my house in my own gardens, we try to clean up just for display purposes. Yeah. Hmm.
0: And for those not growing hellebore, which I can't even imagine um, let's sell them on them, Barry. So let's talk all the attributes and benefits of the hellebore so first off evergreen Right.
1: Yes. you know well that's that's kind of a misnomer as well uh, here in zone five they can get well let's say this okay we consider them shade plants but in their native habitats they're really meadow forbs they grow in meadows and the meadow grasses and forbs come up and Shield them from the sun as the season comes on. In the early spring, late winter, early spring, the sun isn't that strong, but later on, they need a little protection. If you grow them in full shade, which I do because I have out of 60 acres here, about 45 acres or deep shade woodland, They the foliage looks great all year round until it's ready to be replaced by the old foliage kind of pushes it out of the way. Now I have several beds and I'm looking out the window at them in full sun and they get the morning, noon and evening sun. I mean, you know, the late afternoon sun is brutal them, and they look phenomenal. And in the early spring, they produce more flowers than the ones grown in the shade. And for division purposes, they produce more underground growth than the ones in the deep shade. But come the end of July, the foliage starts getting a little burnt and beat up and tattered.
0: So we're gonna call them as evergreen as a herbaceous plant could probably be, (laughs) right? And certainly uh, deer proof, which we've already established. And then they have several months of bloom when most everything else is not blooming. So late winter into early spring.
1: Yeah, the flowers just hang on. And even as they fade, even as the color fades, they take on this this pastel look to them. And a lot of people, in fact, one fellow, a very good friend of mine, Bob Wollum, who does the Dupont Circle farmers market every Sunday and has people lined up to buy his mm-hmm. flowers he has a really neat farm in Jeffersonton Virginia and he loves the seed pods on the hellebores which can be very ornamental and he sells he sells cut hellebores he was he was like my first cut flower grower to buy hellebores and now I work with almost every member of the association especially cut flower growers which Bob and Alan Armitage and John Dull at NCSU pretty much started many years ago and he loves the seed pods and I do too those beautiful swollen appendages sometimes with a little curly cue at the end of each capsule they're beautiful
0: I agree. And I love having them stay on in the garden for months at a time. Yeah. And I would think another thing that makes Hellebore such a great garden plant is low maintenance. And I don't believe I've ever fertilized mine. Do you, do you fertilize yours?
1: I do the the ones in pots in the greenhouses and we grow a hundred thousand two inch pots a year. And then they're in the uh, supply chain then they get bubbed up to five-inch pots. We also sell bare root divisions to all the cut flower growers by the hundred. But the ones in two-inch pots, since they're in what we refer to in the nursery business as, and I'm using air quotes, artificial media, because the only thing that's artificial in there is the perlite, because you have in a good perennial mix, and hellebores like a well-drained perennial mix if you're going to grow them in a pot, And in the and the ground too, they like and it sounds like a contradiction in terms: rich, moist, organic matter, but well drained. They don't like. It's the only way I've ever been able to kill a hellebore is by planting it in a spring or a puddle. So, in the pots, we have what again? Here come the air quotes: artificial media. Which is basically sixty-five percent composted pine bark, which we know is organic, and about thirty percent peat moss, which we also know is organic, and the rest is perlite, which is a puffed volcanic rock that creates air spaces and helps with the drainage. So, even though we refer to it as an inorganic artificial media, it is pretty natural. Now, the it has to drain well. So we use a what we call a wetting agent because with all that peat moss in there, peat moss doesn't hold water well. So we use a wetting agent. And when we first transplant, then we use a nine forty-five fifteen 15 fertilizer, which is 9% nitrogen, which creates top growth. 10-45% uh, uh, phosphorus, which produces roots. That's why it's so heavy on phosphorus and uh 15% potassium and the 45% phosphorus creates really good roots it's called the plant starter formula and then after that we switch off to and this is liquid fertilizer basically what we do is we'll take 10 pounds of the powdered fertilizer mix it with 5 gallons of water and then that concentrate gets proportioned out by a machine in each greenhouse at a ratio of a hundred to one, so they're getting twenty-four hundred parts per million nitrogen. This is way too much information for the average grower, <laughs> but I mean, this, this is like a, pre, a pre-programmed rap for all the growers that ask me for advice. You know, I just press a button and it just flows out of my mouth. But basically, in answer to your question. The ones in the ground with six acres of them, we don't have time to fertilize them. So they're just doing incredible on their own. And even though the soil in my woodlands is a pH of about 5.5, hellebores in their natural habitat grow on limestone. And that's a, another testament to their wide range of situations how they'll tolerate anything because here you have a plant growing in an acid woodland condition that normally grows in a limey meadow so you can really push the hell out of them and they reach their limit when you plant them in a running spring or a hmm. or or a puddle
0: yep so extremely widely adaptable to different growing conditions and as you said before they can go from part sun to full shade um and and take a lot of different abuse um even the occasional foot traffic i think
1: oh yeah i uh, well you know i have deer paths all through my hellebores and uh, that's how i realized that they were completely deer proof with six acres of them that are not fenced they've never taken a single bite
0: <laughs> yeah and i hear from some of my readers that the hellebore uh, also make good deer beds that because they can't eat the hellebore that's where they bed down in
1: well you know that i I do have some pasture for my horses and they seem to bed down in the lush grass before the haze put up more so than the hellebores and i would think that the hellebores are very the leaves are very serrated i would think that the prickly serration would irritate the deer but who Mm, knows well
0: yeah in comparison (laughs) to amongst other plants when they're tired
1: when they're tired they're (laughs) going to lay down anywhere
0: wanted to talk a little bit about the different hellebore species which you had alluded to before and talked about uh, that most of what we're growing in our gardens are the hybrids Um, but there's the hellebores fetidus which is also called commonly the stinking hellebore Well, i hate Um, that
1: i hate that Uh, (laughs) you know what there's another common name called the barefoot hellebore bear claw hellebore uh you know let's stick with that or let's just call it hellebore fetidus that's the that's the name that linnaeus gave to it and that's kind of a bad term also because fetid in latin means smelly So, Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, all right, hellebore fetidus, the palmate hellebore, you don't know how many people in my garden I fooled and told them it was marijuana because the leaves do resemble marijuana. Now, this is a a short-lived plant compared to the hellebores ex-hybridus, which live longer than people do. And the hellebore fetidus is maybe four or five, six, seven years at the most, but they seed around. And there's been several named varieties. One, uh, the first one that I ever encountered was Miss Jekyll and that had really neat red stems, but I found lots of other seedlings and I found silver ones. And I I used to have them all kept separately and used to keep the seeds separate. And I just said to hell with it and I let them all mix together. Now you get a really neat variable mix. Now, they prefer even better drainage than the Heliborus ex hybridus, and they like a little bit of sun.
0: And on your website, I was looking at a helibor I've never grown or encountered, I don't believe called um, Lividus.
1: Okay, well, that's Lividus is a not non hardy species. It grows in the warmest parts of England well. So, what they've done is they've taken Lividus. And bred it with Heliborus argutifolius, which used to be known as Heliborus lividus corsicus. So, the crossing of Heliborus lividus with Heliborus argutifolius makes Heliborus externii sternii. Then they take they've taken that externii and crossed it with Niger, the Christmas rose, and that's all the Helibors that you see and Lowe's and Trader Joe's growing in pots uh, that all flowered the same exact time. They were pr- produced by a couple guys guys who actually came to visit me when I first got started in hellebores, uh, named the Huger brothers in Germany. And those plants are all produced in tissue culture. Uh, they were originally bred by a family in England, the Tristans, who were brilliant, brilliant hellebore breeders. And the foliage is incredibly marbled the flowers are huge, the plants are kind of short-lived because the I I think because they're such interspecific crosses. And when I say interspecific, that I mean the term interspecific means between different species in the same genus. So like I said, you have helibor lividus which isn't hardy, bred with heliborus argutifolius, which is, which produces heliborus externii, which is hardy. And then they crossed that back with Heliboris Niger and came up with the current strain. I'm trying to think of the names kind of as mm-hmm. Ivory Prince. That was the first yes. one.
0: I was going to say Ivory Prince and Joseph Lemper, which is oh, probably yeah. joseph Lemper, yeah. is a, another beautiful one you see a lot. And they're usually, again, sold in pots at. You know, local supermarkets and big box stores around yeah. Christmas time.
1: Well, you know, they're like they're like uh, Easter lilies and Easter cyclamen and things like that. Now that people just toss away azaleas, potted flowering azaleas, they sell them at Walmart or Trader Joe's or something in flower, or Lowe's or Home Depot, and uh, then you know people keep them for the couple months that they're flowering, and then they pitch them. Of course, they could be kept alive if you wanted to keep dividing them. The Easter lilies can go in a garden that's, I think that's Mm -hmm. lilium formosanum, and that can become a hardy garden plant. The cyclamen are cyclamen persicum, which people grow for the beautiful flowers, and then the flowers disappear, the foliage disappears, and they have a bulb in there, and they think it died, and they toss it, or they keep watering it, and it rots. If you have a cyclamen, or the true pronunciation is cyclamen, and it's done flowering and loses leaves, just, you know, let it stay dry. I mean, that tuber is totally full of water and can last and last and last. You know, if the top of the soil in the pot is bone dry, you give it a little bit of water maybe every couple weeks or a month, but you don't want to keep the soil wet. And then the following spring, it'll come back. And you'll have that cyclone again. In fact, you can even collect the seeds from it and grow them on. They germinate the first year and produce a flowering-sized plant pretty quick.
0: Yeah, that's great points. A lot of things that we consider disposable plants aren't necessarily that they can be propagated outside or planted straight out, um, like the supermarket primrose I just bought today. And I usually let them flower until they stop flowering inside. And then I just pop them outside and they've come back annually for me and bloomed again and again.
1: Well, they they are, um, you know, one, one of the varieties of the um, uh, primula and and you know i i i'm still a member of the primula society and they, they wanted, hold on a second i'm waiting till this call stops ringing there we go uh one of the varieties and i'm trying to think of which one it was it wasn't maybe it's Opconica. it's an annual or as we say temperennial, which mm-hmm. is basically a short lived perennial now if you want to grow some primroses that are perennials and there's probably over 300 primula species out there my biggest seller which is also makes a great cut flower is primula japonica and i have an incredible color strain of primula japonica that i sell out on every year that is everything from pure white which used to be from my original strain of uh one that was developed in england called Postford's white, and another one called Miller's crimson. And that's what I basically started with and started breeding the two of them together and coming up with not just crimson and white ones, but grape colored ones and cinnamon colors and reds. And and they are just really, really amazing to naturalize. Primula japonica, the Japanese primrose.
0: Hmm. I think we're going to have to do a separate podcast another time just on Primrose. <laughs> uh, we
1: could do hundred podcasts on plants. There's so many, <laughs> so many plants, so little time.
0: Exactly. So back to your Hellebore um, selections, what are you selecting for in the hybrid?
1: Well, basically for hybrid vigor, we try to cross pollinate different plants with each other and, they, I call them the sunshine selections. I've resisted the temptation to give them individual names. And I still, you know, I post a lot on my Facebook page. Uh, people want to go to Facebook and look me up. Uh, just look up Glickster and, on Facebook or just look up Barry Glick. And I try to post a different picture of a different plant every day. This is hellebores. I posted, uh, like I said, the... Uh, germinating seedlings today yesterday i posted about 10 different uh, spotted flowers and the, i think the day before was an centered one so i try to try to mix it up but i basically call them the sunshine selections and at one point i did have some individual selections in tissue culture but they were very slow in tissue culture back in the old days and i pretty much closed my tissue culture lab down because nowadays people just like the variety and especially my cut flower growers they want
0: variety and beside vigor are you looking for a particular um, coloration on them are you looking for the face to turn up
1: no that's never going to happen well uh, never say never that's unlikely and in my lectures I first make sure there's no obese people in the audience. And then I say, uh, if there's somebody asks me a question about up-facing flowers, says, come on, you've been sitting in the house eating half gallons of Briars ice cream all winter, uh, get out there and bend over and pick the flowers up and look at them. You know, you need the exercise.
0: <laughs> I think we all do at the end of this winter. Well, you know what, Kath,
1: mm-hmm. I, you know, I, here's my explanation. Look at the time of year that hellebores are flowering. It's winter, there's sleet, there's snow, there's rain, there's freezing rain. It's brutal. And pollen gets killed by moisture, by wet. Most pollen does, hellebore pollen does. So the flowers have evolved to be their own little umbrellas so that the pollen stays dry. And when insects come to collect the pollen and take it from one flower to the other, or get the nectar out of the bottom of the flower, which we call nectaries. Um, And that's another point I wanted to make about the sepals. But, and also for beekeepers, I have a big market with beekeepers who are looking for early pollen and nectar sources. Well, hell, these things are flowering into January, into February, March, April, and May. I said, you know, what better a pollen source? Because each flower has over a hundred anthers and each anther has two pollen sacs, and they open slowly over six to eight weeks so you have a ever blossoming source of pollen and nectar. Now people when they're looking at a hellebore flower say oh that one has very nice petals. They're not petals. The petals are in the center of the flower and they're aborted in this primitive flower and they're referred to as nectaries. And the five appendages that you're looking at are called sepals that's uh, except if you're looking at a what we call a semi-double then the nectaries have become petaloid they're still not true doubles because they have sexual parts
0: well that's terrific points barry that it is a great pollinator source in that time of year that not much else is blooming out there and we get a little obsessed with wanting to look at them when we're stuck inside. So one of the ways that I enjoy my hellebore are to uh, take some of the, what you would call flower heads off and float them in a bowl of water. And I find that they last that way for a good six weeks or so.
1: My, my sentiments exactly. And it's nice to use a little packet of floral preservative that comes with uh, bouquets from the supermarket and you never used it all. Uh, you know i'll use uh half of a packet and then store the rest of it and use it in that water to float the hellebores in there and yeah that's a great way to display them because they're looking right up at you
0: and i was going to say that another way to enjoy them is to scroll through the selections on your website which i'm doing right now so it's sunfarm.com and then you click on the the sunshine selections and you have dozens, (laughs) I don't know how many pictures you have. I want to say hundreds. You know
1: what? It's better to look on Facebook because Mm -hmm. those pictures are so old. I mean, Uh, they're they're from uh, ectochrome slides. That's how old they are uh, that I scanned, but uh, the newer pictures are uh, up on Facebook
0: still fun to look through all the different ones oh yeah yeah all the variability uh you know from spotting to streaking to dark burgundy that's almost black to the you know pale 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 ones um it's just a great very variable flower which i guess when you have the seedlings that you're raising uh is each one a surprise yes
1: yes oh that's the the greatest thrill of all is seeing one bloom for the first time
0: and from seed to bloom, how long is that? Three to
1: five years.
0: So a little bit of an investment. It's not like growing annuals or vegetables. That's
1: how we gardeners kind of try to fool the angel of death. Because we have so many unfinished projects going on that I think the angel of death says, oh, we'll wait another year or two for that guy. He's got, he's got some stuff he's waiting on. So... Um, and you see, most most gardeners live a long, long life. I think it's because it's a combination of, well, here, especially in the mountain state, West Virginia, hiking up and down hills, because I have gardens at different levels and different elevations all over the farm. But also, most gardeners are pretty healthy, health-oriented, very conscious people. Wouldn't you say?
0: And it's, yeah, a lifestyle that lends itself to the healthy. So it's kind of a, a chicken and egg thing, but then it can also make you more healthy by it. Yeah.
1: Just look in the mirror, Kath. <laughs> okay. yeah.
0: So uh, thank you so much, Barry, for letting us pick your brains about everything Hellebore. Um, any last thoughts to leave our listeners with?
1: You know me, I can talk all day, but I'm getting hungry and thirsty, so... Uh, And I got to go put some wood on the furnace and uh, make sure that the house is nice and warm tonight and go for a little
0: hike. Sounds like a lovely winter evening. I thought I'd share a little bit about a big project I've been working on for several years and that's National Seed Swap Day. I started National Seed Swap Day back in 2006 as part of the promotion for our Washington Gardener Magazine annual seed exchanges. And I had it named an official holiday for the last Saturday of January every year. After that event's success the first year, seed swaps in other cities started to be added to it, and we started a National Seed Swap Day website called seedswapday.com, and you can find seed swaps all across the nation and now in other countries as well listed there. Of course, this year due to COVID, a little bit of wrinkle in there, in-person seed swapping, maybe not the best idea, but we're gonna explore that, and what we're gonna do is have a live session on youtube and zoom on seed swap day itself this year it's january 30th a saturday of course and it will be from 2 to 4 p.m eastern time and i'm going to have special guests seed experts we're going to talk about everything seedy and we are going to talk about how you can safely have a seed swap in a pandemic and other ways that you can swap seeds if you cannot safely get together. So I hope you'll join me for that and we will have details on how to do so at seedswapday.com shortly and happy gardening. Profile Smooth Hydrangea. Smooth Hydrangea, Hydrangea arborescence, is a native shrub that blooms from late spring through summer. Typically, the flowers emerge green in color, then turn white before they fade to brown. Newer introductions have added shades of pink to the color selections available. These include Invincible Ruby, Invincible Mini Mauvette, and Invincible Spirit. Some favorite new varieties include the Invincible Wee White Hydrangea, a dwarf selection that gets only about two feet tall. The best-known smooth hydrangea is Annabelle, with its enormous blooms, but it does tend to droop from the heavy flowers. So look instead for the improved Incredible at your local garden centers. They are deciduous and unlike the mophead hydrangeas, Hydrangea macrophylla. You cannot change their flower color by adjusting the soil pH. They prefer part sun to full sun locations. It is a good idea though to give them protection from the harshest afternoon rays. These plants need well-drained but moist soil. Add mulch around their root zones to keep the soil moist during dry periods. Fertilize in early spring before the new growth starts to appear with a slow release fertilizer that is designed for woody plants. You should then prune them back by trimming one-third of the total length of the branches. As these shrubs bloom on new wood, this will serve to strengthen the plant's stems and encourage lots of blooming in the growing season. Smooth hydrangea, you can grow that! Thank you for listening to Garden DC. You can become a listener supporter by going to anchor.fm backslash Kathy-Gents backslash support. For as little as 99 cents a month, you can become a listener supporter and we'll give you a shout out in a future episode. Another way to support Garden DC is to go to washingtongardener.com